Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Well, hello, everybody. It is that time of the week, Monday night, when we read another two chapters from our favorite book, Return of the Living Dead, the novelization by John Russo. Last week's uh, episode was really long. Uh, This week's might be equally as long because we have two chapters to read. It's the same sort of situation where one chapter is short and the other one is long, but we will just dive in and just tackle it. Um, Where where do we last leave off? They... uh, our right they the uh suicide bites it or i should say the tar man bites it in into suicide's head suicide gets eaten um tina gets rescued they make the decision to burn up the body and frank and freddie aren't feeling very well so there is there's a lot there's a lot going on rigor rigor mortis might be happening they, they call some ambulances i'm about to sneeze and one second and excuse me i hate it when that happens but it does i am only human um chapter 12 after the gang ran up the basement stairs chased by the chemical mummy tina was the first one to come back and help meet barricade the door she acted not out of bravery but out of fear His yells for help had stopped her impulse to flee by making her hope that if that horrid thing could be kept in the basement, she would be safe from it at last. Unfortunately, the basement door could not be locked without a key. Meat was struggling, pushing with all of his might to stop the monster from coming through. But the knob was twisting and jerking and the door was coming away from the jab, clutched by fingers of blackened, shriveled flesh. Tina spied a big fire axe leaning uh, in the corner and chopped at the fingers, hacking and slashing till several of them fell off, writhing and squirming on the floor, squirming on the floor. That's italicized. Uh, That's not in the movie, though, Uh, the the chopping of the fingers. And I love how the, the tar man goes from barely being held together by goo to suddenly now being very strong. I mean, well, the fact that he's even biting into Suicide's head. But listen, as a young boy, I was still terrified. It didn't matter. It didn't matter whether it was possible or not. It was. She chopped and fought. Tina's shook up brain made the connection. Freddie was dealing with squirmy things, too, back at the funeral parlor. Ah, So she put two and two together. Losing its fingers did not stop the monster from trying to come through. It kept pushing, and it was all Meat and Tina could do to shove the door shut again. Help us, you chicken shit bastards, Meat yelled. 
Scuzz, Chuck, Casey, and Legs finally started contributing to the fight for survival. They shoved a heavy packing crate in front of the door, and Meat and Tina helped slide it firmly into place. In replacing their own bodies with the crate, the door came open a few inches, and once again, Tina had to chop at the monster with the fire axe till it retreated enough to bang the door shut and wedge the packing crate solidly against it. I do like the heightened tension that we get from, I and mean, we don't really get that in the movie. This is a nice little uh, flourish that, that I don't know if that's in the script, but it's a nice little flourish. Nails, meat yells. Casey, legs, fine nails. Uh, while Scuzz, Chuck, Meat, and Tina use their combined weight and strength against the door and the crate, I mean, that's a little ridiculous. That part, that's a little ridiculous. Legs and Casey went scurrying through the warehouse, down the aisles and corridors of the supply-laden shelves. They found a hammer and spikes beside a packing crate. Spikes. Uh, beside a packing crate in which a human skeleton was lying, packed in Excelsior. While the rest of the gang pushed against the basement door, and the packing crate barricade, Meat drove spikes right through the boards of the crate and into the wall so the door could not be opened again, even though the mummy kept pounding on it and croaking, brains, brains. After a while, the gang felt, the gang all felt safe enough to stop shoving so hard and then to move to the, uh, move back from the barricade. They were all out of breath, frightened, and disheveled. Oh, God, oh, God, what was that hideous, horrible thing, Legs babbled on. What are we going to do? What the fuck are we going to do, said Meat. Suicide is down there, Chuck moaned. Moaned. He's gone, man, said Scuzz. It ate his head. He thought for a moment and scowled angrily. Hey, man, my box, man, it's down there, too. That goddamn monster got my box, the, the ghetto blaster. Maybe it digs music, said Neat. Shit, somebody better come and kill that thing so I can get my music box back, Scuzz whined. Neat said, I don't hear nothing down there. My box was turned off, man, said Scuzz. I turned it off back in the car. I'm not talking about your fucking box, Neat snapped. I mean, I don't hear the monster anymore, you dumb shit. Maybe it went back down the stairs, said Tina. Maybe there's another way up here, Casey said, panic-stricken. Let's get out of here, said Chuck. He turned to Tina. Where's Freddy? Still at the funeral parlor? I saw you rapping. I saw you rapping with him over there. Tina nodded slowly. She didn't say what was on her mind, but she was terribly worried for Freddie, scared that he was dealing with something similar to the Terry, the Tari, the Tari mummy that had devoured suicide. Meat said, all right, listen, we'll go over there to that funeral home and find Freddie, and then we'll call somebody from there. I don't want to call no cops, said Scuzz. The cops are just going to blame us for everything and kick our asses. Chuck said, hey, get fucked, Scuzz, with your cop paranoia. We're in deep shit here. Tina said, let's go, let's go. Suddenly, this is it's so funny. This is so Scooby-Doo-ish. And it's also like, I, the one thing I do like in the movie, I like that they, you know, uh, they overreact and just nail the door shut. There's no struggle. We don't need the struggle with, with the Tar Man because the Tar Man's not strong. That's stupid. Suddenly she had to, <laughs> but people coming out of the ground is not stupid. Suddenly... She had to get to where Freddy was to make sure he was okay. She touched the top of her head. It was bare. At some point during the struggle, she had lost Freddy's red baseball cap, and that loss seemed like a bad omen. It was probably down in the basement with the monster, along with Scuzz's ghetto blaster and Suicide's dead body. 
Back out into that hideous rain again, Legs complained, and my skin is already stinging all over. Can it? Can it? Let's move, said Meat. But just as the gang burst out of the front door of the warehouse, the entire sky erupted in the forked tongues of angry lightning, and with a loud crack, a telephone pole was struck and crashed down, ripping power lines and dragging them into the rain-drenched street. Holy fuck, Meat yelled. He and the rest of the gang froze, awed by a tremendous electric electrical display caused by live cables whipping and sparking, turning puddles into stinking clouds of yellow vapor. The street was impassable. See, that's a, that's a great touch. Why wasn't that in the in the in the movie? The telephone pole had fallen. Well, it's cost too much money. The telephone pole had fallen diagonally across it, smashing down some heavy tree branches in its path adding and adding them to the mess of electrified debris how the hell are we going to get to the funeral parlor now scuzz cried cut through the cemetery meat shouted he led the way i mean in the movie you don't even i I get it you know in the movie you don't need it they just run out they're scared they run back into the cemetery and that's what happens and they're not even aware of the funeral parlor at that point uh cut through the cemetery meat shouted he led the way skirting the damage caused by the lightning bolt running past suicide's convertible and under the stone archway. The rain kept coming down in sheets. The wind blew in gusts. The wind blew it in gusts. Lightning flashed and exploded. When meat glimpsed what was lit up by the lightning, he stopped in his tracks and everybody else stopped with him. The graveyard was running with mud, slippery, slimy, horrible mud. And it was if the mud had been bulldozed, overturned. Gravestones and monuments were tilted and knocked over. Instead of an even surface of drenched grass, the cemetery resembled a field that had been madly plowed and excavated by a maniac and then diluged with water. Meat and the gang huddled under the overhanging eaves of large stone mausoleum whose roof and walls had been split and cracked open. They were stranded by the lake of mud. Holy shit, Meat said. We're going to have to swim to get through there. I, I like, man, I really like this addition of detail that we don't get much of in the movie. Like, that's so great. Suddenly, out of the darkness and the rain came a horrible moaning sound. This is not something I want to be reading alone in the basement at 10 o'clock at night with everybody else asleep in my house. This is terrifying to me. It was like the sound of a mass hunger, (gasps) a chorus of ravenous moans. Meat and the gang wheeled around, facing the direction they had come from. Lightning lit up the cemetery, and 10 feet in front of them, the gang saw a pair of rotted hands clawing their way out of the liquid mud. That sight was horrible enough, but what was beyond the hands was even more horrible. A group of rotted corpses, about a dozen of them, were shuffling across the graveyard, wading into the slime, groaning hungrily. Brains! brains some of them rasp rasped like the mummy in the warehouse basement the rotting hands continued to claw till the corpse's head popped up out of the mud filling its lungs with air the half-submerged corpse let out a terrible howl of agony 
We got to make a break for it, Meat said in a tight, fear-ridden voice. Run, split up, whatever it takes. We got to save our asses. Even as they stood there with little hope of surviving the onslaught of the hungry corpses, their situation was getting worse. Other groups of ghouls were approaching them from other parts of the cemetery, drawn by their lust for living flesh. I'm cutting out, man, Scuzz yelled. He took off running, oblivious to the ooze and the water that he had to splash through and abandoning his girlfriend, Legs, who tried desperately to catch up with him. She slipped and fell sideways, and the corpse, halfway out of its grave, made a lunge at her, grabbing her by the ankle. She screamed and squirmed, slipping and sliding, unable to gain any traction as the moaning corpse pulled her down into the slime. Because of the darkness and the blinding rain, none of her friends saw what happened to her. They were all fleeing for their lives, trying to avoid the deepest, sludgiest mud that would suck them down like quicksand. In their effort to escape, they had two advantages that they didn't know about. One was that the corpses moved slowly, not having full efficient use of their limbs because of their dead, rotted muscles and ligaments. The second advantage was that the army of ghouls was partially diverted by legs, the prey who had already been caught. They advanced upon her as she struggled and screamed while the rest of the gang plunged headlong through the swampy, uprooted graveyard. The half-submerged corpse clung to her legs while the others shuffled and crawled towards her, surrounding her, dozens of hands reaching for her in the driving rain, rotting, melting arms, grabbing her, pushing her head down deep into the sea of mud, drowning her screams. Absolutely terrifying. This is terrifying. And... um. Yeah, man, I mean, it's more realistic that they don't run, but it's so terrifying in the movie. To see them move fast, fast-moving corpses, absolutely terrifying. But still, this is good. This is where, again, Russo shines. He, It's so funny. He goes from, from being, like, so goofy and fumbling over, you know, tripping over his feet with some of this dialogue and these words and these ideas, and then there are other times where he's just... He he's just cooking. He's cooking and he he can't be stopped. And these these are some of those moments, I would say. Uh so well done, Russo. 13. The paramet oh, the 13. I think I remember this chapter, and it's I remember why it's so long. Chapter 13. The paramedics who were dispatched to the Colton Burners funeral home had been playing cards at the station, hoping to get through the rest of the evening without making any more runs, except the kind that counted in scoring for gin rummy. But they knew since this was the start of an exceptionally long Fourth of July weekend, it'd be a miracle if nobody else on their beat got maimed, lacerated, bludgeoned, shot or hit by a heart attack. Then they had received the call about two guys being poisoned and had set out on their ninth run of the day, which at least was not run of the mill. Don Burchock and Stan Feldstein, the two paramedic, we're about to get so much backstory about the two paramedic guys that are on screen for two seconds of the movie. Uh, the two paramedics sped to the scene of the poisoning call in their long white ambulance, lights flashing and siren wailing, through a heavy downpour, both men were in their early 30s, both Vietnam veterans, having received their medical emergency training in the U.S. Army. 
both had men die in their arms, horribly wounded. After trying to patch together soldiers who were ripped to shreds by landmines, grenades, and mortars, they might be expected to have a certain blasé attitude about the lesser forms of civilian tragedy. Great. That's a great sentence. Both affected such an attitude, but never, re- but neither really felt it, and neither would admit to would admit would admit it to one another. So they each thought they were the only one with a secret soft spot. Don Burchock, driving the ambulance on this run, was an abuser of alcohol and amphetamines. His pretty wife had left him because of it, taking custody of their two children. He wasn't entirely sure why he was hung up on booze and pills. The drugs never completely staved off his battlefield nightmares and his feeling of being a failure as a civilian. Uh, Before going to the NAM, he had studied acting and had illusions of becoming a movie star. Sometimes when he didn't get stoned for a while, he was still almost handsome, especially if he wore a hat. So his hair, hair loss didn't show. Um. But when he was on a binge, he looked like a fading has-been, sallow and sunken and washed out, 20 years older than his real age. Sometimes he thought that it was his job. His job was destroying him. It turned out to be harder for him to look at dead babies and pretty women all cut up in domestic situations uh, or domestic settings that were supposed to be that, that were supposed to be peaceful than to deal with the ugly casualties of war that at least were to be expected. Stan Feldstein, Burchock's partner, was disturbed by the exact, exactly the same paradox. But whereas Burchock had confided his feelings to nobody, Feldstein had confessed to his fiancée. She had understood and consoled him and encouraged him in his ambition to go back to college and stop driving an ambulance as soon as possible. Feldstein was studying for a degree in education. When he finished his student teaching next January, he was going to get married and start working as a biology teacher in the Louisville school system. Makes sense. As Burchock wheeled the ambulance around the corner into the block where Colton Brunner's funeral home was, he saw the power lines down down up the street and the sparks flashing in the heavy rain. The street lamps and the house lights up there were out, but the Colton Brunner's end of the block still had electrical service. The funeral home had lights on inside and outside as the ambulance pulled into the lot. Not bothering to pull ponchos or uh, not bothering to pull ponchos on over their white uniforms, Burchock and Feldstein jumped out of their vehicle leaving the lights flashing. They ran to the side door and rang the night bell. A guy in a yellow windbreaker and a floppy golfer's hat let them in, and they brushed the rain off themselves, noticing how the rain in this part of town seemed to sting their faces and arms. You're the paramedics, Bert Wilson asked, pushing his heavy black frame glasses up his nose. He peered at the red crosses on the white boxes they were carrying. We ain't Santa and his reindeer, said Burchock, glancing around. Are you the fellow who called us? And then we get dialogue like that. No, I'm Bert Wilson. Ernie Coltonbrenner placed the emergency call. He owns the place. He's busy with a couple of his uh, clients. Who took the poison, Burchock asked. Those guys over there, said Bert, pointing at Freddie and Frank, who were sitting side by side in the folding chairs against the wall parallel to the embalming tables which were now empty of their former cargo. 
Burchok and Feldstein came over and looked at the two poisoned men who were wrapped in blankets, shivering. The blankets of pale blue satin looked suspiciously like the kind used in coffins, and Burchok and Feldstein guessed that they had been provided by the funeral director and were probably all that they had on hand. Frank and Freddie had gray, greasy complexions. That is a really, really yucky descriptor. Gray, greasy complexions, purple circles under their yellow bloodshot eyes. What did you guys take? Feldstein asked. Frank and Freddie moved their mouths a little, but neither answered right away. It was like they were too weak to think or talk. Bert Wilson answered for them. It was some kind of industrial chemical, something in the drum. What drum? Where? Barked Burchock. Uh, we're not sure, Bert stammered. Can you find out, Feldstein asked? Your friends' lives may depend on it. How do you expect us to help them if we don't even know what they took? Burchock complained. Uh, I can make some phone calls, Bert hedged, but nothing before morning. Shrugging resignedly, Feldstein uh, knelt and opened the lid of his medical emergency kit. Let's take some vital signs, he suggested to Burchock. Try to get some idea of what we might be dealing with here. The paramedics put digital readout thermometers in Frank and Freddie's mouths. Burchock wrapped a blood pressure cuff around Frank's arm while Feldstein took Freddie's pulse. The medics were immediately puzzled by the readings they were getting. They fumbled with the various instruments, shaking them, trying them, trying them again. Burchock swore, damn, can I borrow your stethoscope, Stan? What's wrong, said Feldstein. Taxpayers pay good money to outfit you guys, and you guys come here with faulty equipment, Bert Wilson muttered. Burchock shot Bert a mean look, but ignored him and spoke to Feldstein. I can't hear anything, he said moving the stethoscope all around Freddy's chest. Are you sure it's the stethoscope? Asked Feldstein. What do you mean? I can't hear a pulse through this one either. I can't hear a pulse through this one either. What the hell is going on here? Said Burchock. Are we going crazy? Let's switch patients. Freddy, Frank and Freddy stayed slumped in a sort of stupor, their skin grayer and their eyes yellower and more bloodshot than before. What do you mean? What's wrong? Freddy said in a weak, hoarse whisper. Dear God, help me get better, Freddy Frank croaked. He tried making a sign of the cross, but couldn't lift his arm. Burchock and Feldstein kept moving around, trying different things with their equipment. No blood pressure, said Feldstein. No pulse, said Burchock. Freddy croaked. What do you mean, no blood pressure, no pulse? Yeah, Frank rasped. Shh, Feldstein cautioned. He was trying to hear anything, even something weak. Through his stethoscope. He and Burchock bent over their instruments in silent concentration. Frank and Freddie stared at the medics with growing horror. Suddenly, one of the thermometers, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't use suddenly when you're writing. You never use the word suddenly. This was told to me. You don't use the word suddenly. Suddenly, one of the thermometers, suddenly is a visual cinematic verb. You show that cinematically. You never describe suddenly. Suddenly, one of the thermometers beeped, and then the other. The paramedics took them out of their patients' mouths and held them up to look at them. Burchock and Feldstein turned and saw disbelieving expressions on each other's faces. Are you sure you guys know what you're doing, Bert Wilson said indignantly? Shut up, Burchock snapped at him. Then to Feldstein, he said, what reading do you have? 70, said Feldstein, shaking his head in befuddlement. 70 what, Freddy croaked. The confusion was making him scared, and he was beginning to suspect both paramedics of incompetence. 
70 degrees, said Feldstein. What's that, Freddie Pipe? Frank, what's that, Frank piped up weakly? What's that, Frank piped up weakly? Room temperature, Feldstein explained. Yeah, that's all I'm getting. 70, said Birchok. It can't be the equipment. It wouldn't all go bad at once. Something really goofy is happening happening here, said Feldstein. You don't suppose some kind of new disease, like AIDS, maybe? Wow. This is written in 1983 or 84, and they're actually, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like, I mean, that's what people back in the day, when there wasn't enough information, like, you would look at it. Oh, it is so brutal, man. So brutal. AIDS. Like, I mean, that's that's real. And there was no cure for it either. I don't know. I don't know why I'm talking about this. What? What are you guys saying? Freddie said in a weak, hoarse whisper. But the paramedics ignored him. They backed off a few paces and discussed the situation in hushed tones. Meanwhile, Ernie Coltenburner was admiring the fine job he had done on Morton and Helen Dowden, who were laid out in matching bronze caskets side by side in one of the large slumber parlors on the main floor of the funeral home. Morton was in a black tuxedo and Helen was wearing a lovely blue gown with matching blue evening gloves. Their silver white heads of hair were beautifully coiffed, coiffed and combed. Their faces were tan and healthy looking, turned slightly to face the visitors expected on Thursday. Ernie had cosmetized, hmm. Ernie had cosmetized, I don't know, I can't pronounce that, Cos, like you're saying cosmetic, cosmetic-tized, cosmetized, cosmetized. Ernie had cosmetized the cuts on Morton's face using Dermawax and blended it in with Sutan flush dusting powder applied with a fine bristled brush. He had put a touch of rouge on the cheeks to contribute to the appearance of good health. He had glued down the eyelids because they had kept peeping open, apparently not adequately secured by the rigid plastic eye caps inserted underneath. He was... He was particularly proud of the job he had done on Helen's nose. It looked exactly like the original, blended perfectly in her own flesh with the same satin sutan dusting powder that Ernie had used on her husband. He also used rouge and ruby lip gloss to emphasize her serene, mature beauty. Since her, since her gown was rather low cut, he had more work to do, making the flesh of her arms, shoulders, and neck the same shade as her face. Wishing to see the Dowdens exactly as they would appear to their visitors on Thursday, he turned on the rose-colored spotlights above the caskets. Then he had noticed a fleck of lint on Helen's right eyelash. Just as he picked it off, he he heard a loud hammering on the front doors, so loud that he was afraid the glass would shatter. Drawing his Luger from under his belt, he headed for the foyer. The lobby was dark as Ernie came through it. His gun raised. The loud hammering on the glass kept up. He saw silhouetted figures banging and screaming. He ducked behind an armchair, training his gun on the figures on the other side of the glass. With his free hand, he reached over and turned on the outside porch light. He saw some weird, 
water-soaked creatures, Tina, Meat, and Scuzz. They terrified him, especially the one in all green with green mohawk hair. The black one wasn't any beauty either with his long dreadlocks flying up as he jumped up and down, flying as he jumped up and down. The girl looked like a chip. The girl looked like a chippy in her red plastic miniskirt with her long black hair plastered to her face in disheveled strands. She yelled, please help us, mister. We're being chased. Oh, God, please stop banging on the glass or I'll shoot. Ernie yelled, please. I'm Freddie's girlfriend. The girl cried. Is he still here? What's your name? Ernie challenged, pointing the Luger. The trio on the porch had stopped pounding and yelling, but they kept glancing around as if they expected to be pounced on from behind. Tina, my name is Tina, said the girl. Let us in. It checked. Ernie remembered Freddie mentioning the girls named Tina, the girl named Tina, who had come to him earlier, just as he and Frank had finished unloading the van. Cautiously, he emerged from behind the chair and crept towards the front door, keeping his Luger at the ready. He said, all right, come in. But if you make one funny move, you're all dead. Warley, with their hands up, Meat and Tina and Scuzz edged into the lobby. Meat said, don't shoot us, man. We, we ain't the danger. It's what's after us. Are you crazy? Ernie said, are you on drugs? I like the line. Are you on PCP? Doesn't he say that in the movie? You got to lock the doors, Scuzz blurted. You got to lock all the doors, Scuzz blurted, and the windows, and call the cops. They're out there. What? said Ernie. Who? Who's out there? Tina grabbed Ernie by the arm, too scared to care about his gun. Do you hear that? She asked him with a wild look in her eyes. Hear what? scoffed Ernie. I don't hear a darn thing but rain and thunder. Shut up and listen, man, said Scuzz. They all quieted down. The rain was loud, but behind it, could be heard a faint but chilling screeching and moaning sound, a babble of eerie and anguished voices. What is that? cried Ernie, starting to become a believer at last. It's monsters screaming, said Meat. Hungry monsters. What? What monsters, you say? Ernie tried to think if there might be some connection between what he seemed to be hearing out, out there and the creepy, crawly cadaver parts he had recently cremated. They all came up out of the ground, Tina said in a dot, 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 hushed, incredulous tone. They all came up out of the ground and they and they came after us, maybe a hundred of them out of the ground, said Ernie. They came after us in the cemetery, said Tina. We had to run from them. They must have killed legs because she didn't make it back to the warehouse. The rest of us, then me and Scuzz and meat, we decided to try and still make it to get to Freddy. We had to circle here through the alleys, the side streets. Jesus, said Ernie. If what he was hearing was true, then that must be happening all over. Hundreds of corpses might be coming to life. Where's Freddy? Tina pleaded. Where's Freddy? Tina pleaded. Take me to him. Is he okay? When Don Burchock and Stan Feldstein finished huddling and discussing the two strange cases that confronted them, they performed a couple more tests to see if they could obtain any response that was near normal. Burchock tapped Freddy's knee with a rubber hammer. No reflex. He tapped Frank's knee and got no reflex, no reflex there either. Meantime, Feldstein shined a tiny light into Freddy's pupils. He shook his head in consternation. Burchock shined a light into Frank's eyes. He shook his head too. Both paramedics shut their lights off. 
They shrugged at each other and then they faced their patients. Burchock said, look, you have no pulse. Your blood pressure is zero over zero and you have no pupillary, pupillary response, no reflexes and your temperature is 70 degrees. In a horrified croak, Freddie said, what does that all mean? Frank hissed. Are we going to be okay? My wife, she's holding supper for me. I, well, said Burchock, if we're going by the responses we're getting, my partner and I would have to conclude that technically speaking, you're not alive, except you're conscious. So we don't know what that means, except obviously we have to get you to the hospital. You saying we're dead? Freddie croaked. Wait a minute, said Feldstein. Let's not get, let's not get carried away here. We haven't made any diagnosis. We're, we've never seen any case like yours. Obviously, I didn't mean you were dead, said Burchock. Dead people don't move around and talk. It would probably help immensely if we knew what kind of poison you think you took. Be that as it may, we're going to get a couple of stretchers and radio into the hospital. Hang in there. We'll be back in a jiffy. The two medics trotted, uh, trotted to the door and threw it open, ignoring the wind and the rain that whipped into their faces. They trotted out. Frank and Freddie stared at each other when they saw each other's gray skin and yellowish bloodshot eyes. It increased their feeling of panic. Bert Wilson came over and looked at them, keeping a safe distance. The best thing to do is to get you guys to the hospital, he said, wanting to be rid of them. They'll run tests, finds out what's in your bloodstream. Listen, I don't think you guys really have to tell them it happened over at the warehouse. Where it happened is not germane. Know what I mean? Just then, Bert heard Ernie Coltenburner call, call to him from somewhere up uh, in the upstairs of the funeral home. Uh, Bert, can you come here for a minute? Uh, where are you, Ernie? Bert yelled back. Up in the lobby. Come here alone, will you please? <clears throat> you guys just stay here and take it easy, Bert said to Frank and Freddie. Wait for the stretchers. You'll see. You're going to come out of this just fine. He pivoted and skipped up the steps to the lobby where he was start startled to see Ernie holding his Luger on three hideous looking punks, one of whom turned out to be Freddie's girlfriend, Tina. But she looked so scared and muddy and half drowned that Bert almost didn't recognize her. I didn't want to barge in with this ugly looking crew if the paramedics are still around, said Ernie. This one here claims to be Freddie's girlfriend. Is she? Yeah, said Bert. What's going on here? What's going on here? Ernie said, Bert, we have a problem. What do you mean? Meat started ranting and raving. Mister, the graveyard out there is full of people and they're coming up out of the ground. They were chasing us. They killed one of us. They eat human brains. They... Suicide got it, said Scuzz. They took his skull off, bit right through the top like it was an eggshell. Well, what? Bert stammered. Out of the ground, said Tina. They're horrible, and, they're, and they scream, and somebody's got to do something. Mister, they're sure as hell out there, said Meat, and there's one of them out over there in the warehouse. They've been eating people. In the warehouse, Bert said flabbergasted, wondering if his heartaches were ever going to end. That medical supply house, said Tina. You need a medical supply. You're the boss of it, aren't you? Where my boyfriend Freddie works. Is he safe? Bert leaned against the back of a wall, feeling weak. Putting his hands over his mouth, he mumbled, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I think things are out of hand, Bert, said Ernie. Mister, there's a hundred of those things out there, said Meat. Freddie, is he safe? asked Tina. Will somebody take me to him now? Don Burchock and Stan Feldstein were dashing through the rain 
to their ambulance when they heard the choruses of moans and saw a group of shadowy figures coming towards them out of the darkness into the fuzzy, misted lights of the parking lot. They stopped and stared, getting drenched by the yellowish rain, trying to see if there were other hurt people who needed their help. When the shuffling figures came closer and their features became discernible, Birchok cried out, Christ, Stan, those people look worse than the two guys we just examined. Maybe it's an epidemic, said Feldstein, some kind of weird disease unleashed here. The people risen from the graveyard came closer, moaning and screaming, and in a flash of lightning, Birchok and Feldstein sawed rotting clothes and dead, decaying flesh. They're rotting, cried Birchok. Leprosy. We're dealing with an epidemic of leprosy, Stan. That's a great line. That's a great explanation for what they would be seeing. Must be an especially violent, uh, must be an especially virulent strain of it, said Feldstein, his mouth gaping open. You and I might already be infected, Don. Actually, if they're standing in the soaking yellow rain, I think even if they weren't killed or whatever, they would probably, what happened to Frank and Freddie would happen to them as well. The moment you're in the rain, you're exposed. They they were all doomed, probably at slow a slower rate of degradation than, say, what, the, what Frank and Freddie went through, breathed the gas directly. Um. You and I might already be infected, Don. Let's get out of here, Birchok cried. This is too big for us to handle on our own. But we promised to take those two guys to the hospital, said Feldstein. We can't just run out on them. They're depending on us. But there's too many more of them now. Birchok ran for the ambulance, but Feldstein didn't move. He was torn between a sense of duty and his urge to cut and run. The decayed people were coming closer, and there were more of them, approaching from all directions hemming into the two paramedics surrounding them and their ambulance. Oh my God, that is, that's terrifying. His hand on the door handle, Birchok yelled, come on, Stan, there's no time to be a fucking hero. You can't, <clears throat> you can't play Florence Nightingale to all these lepers. <laughs> brains, brains. The surrounding mob began to chanting. The, the surrounding mob began chanting. That's scary as fuck. They're surrounded and they start chanting brains. Birchok yanked on the door handle only to realize it was locked. He had pushed the button down out of habit before slamming the door when he parked. He dug into his pocket for the keys and got them out. And then <clears throat> from behind, one of the screaming, chanting sick people leapt up upon him and uh, getting him into a chokehold. Let me take that again. From behind, one of the screaming, chanting, sick people leapt upon him, getting him into a chokehold. What kind of lepers were these, Feldstein thought, seeing his partner being attacked. He ran over to help out, just as Birchok used some of his army judo training to flip his fiendish attacker over his head. Could you imagine if we got some like some like kung fu judo action from these two guys in the actual movie? That would be awesome. Um, but three more ghouls were immediately upon him, wrestling him to the pavement in the driving rain, sinking, sinking their teeth into his face and neck. That is something we're going to find out as we keep reading these, these ghouls, they don't just eat brains, they eat anything. And it's somehow even more terrifying in that kind of way. I mean, really, truly terrifying. Birchok screamed, Stan, help me, help me. He kept punching and kicking as more of the attackers swarmed upon him. Ugh, you filthy, stinking bastards. 
He grunted, punctuating each word with a punch or a kick. When Feldstein joined the fight, more of the ghouls moved in on him. They ripped and clawed at him, wailing, brains, 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 um, hissing their foul, putrid breath into his face. Upon close, he could see that some of them were skeletal, lumbering hulks, mere frameworks of bone, barely held together by rotted sinew and blackened strands of skin, Others were trailing, oozing strings of intestine as they shuffled around him, clawing and reaching for his throat. One of the ghouls chewing on Birchok's throat bit into his jugular vein, uh, bit his jugular vein in two, and his bright red blood sprayed out in huge pumping spurts. At the same time, two ghouls seized heavily, seized heavy landscaping bricks and bashed in Burchock's skull. Okay, that is a detail that we should have gotten in the movie. I mean, absolutely terrifying. It would have just made so much sense to see these cognitive smart zombies using bricks to cave in skulls. I mean, it just would have been that much more terrifying. So at the same time, two ghouls seized heavy landscaping bricks and bashed in Burchock's skull. While he was still thrashing in his death throes, his attackers jostled and slashed at each other in a frenzy to start devouring his brain. Others drank his blood or chewed various parts of his body in an effort to quell their basic dominant hunger for gray matter. Oh my God, Don! Feldstein cried, jolted by the shock of seeing his partner, that his partner was done for. Up till then, unable to comprehend the true nature of the threat, his sense of desperation had been muted, his aggressiveness subdued by an overwhelming misma, miasma. I've never read that word. Miasma? Miasma. Well, I have since I read this before. Miasma of disbelief. I really want to look it up, but I don't want to stop my flow here. Um, Why were these lepers or whatever they were attacking people? Why were these lepers or whatever they were attacking people who were well? Belatedly, when he was just about to be tackled and swarmed under, Stan Feldstein decided that the best defense was a good offense. His largest and closest attacker attacker was a big, beer-bellied man in a brown suit, totally caked with mud, but not as rotten and decayed as most of his cronies. Just as the big man reached towards him with a leering, ravenous smile, Feldstein unleashed a terrific karate kick, knocking the lumbering Hulk to the pavement. Having momentarily created a gap in the wailing, chanting mob of fiendish decaying faces, Feldstein plunged through and dived when he spot the ambulance keys glittering where Burchock had dropped them. He scooped up the keys and scrambled away from the ghouls who nearly grabbed him. Since the driver's side of the ambulance was blocked by ghouls devouring Burchock's body, Feldstein jinked and darted. (laughs) That's an interesting word. Jinked. Jinked and darted for the passenger side, punching judo and judo chopping and karate kicking, wailing, chanting, rot-faced attackers out of his way. When it looked like curtains for him, he dived and rolled over the hood, thudding to the pavement and bounced up in a fighting stance. Two ghouls were clawing at him, ripping open his soaking wet uniform. When he managed to get the key into the slot, dancing through his mind in a mad disjointed blur were visions of making it into the ambulance, slamming the door, 
locking it, starting the engine and gunning the vehicle right through the onslaught and peeling across the lot safely. And police, oh, lot, take that again. This is a long sentence. Dancing through his mind in a mad disjointed blur were visions of making it into the ambulance, slamming the door, locking it, starting the engine and gunning the vehicle right through the onslaught, peeling across the lot towards the safety and police help towards safety and police help and a chance of earning his teaching certificate and marrying the woman he loved. He flung the door open, smacking it into one of the attackers. Then a brick cracked into the side of his head and losing consciousness in a dimming nightmare of wind and rain and ghastly hungry faces. He sagged knees buckling, hitting the concrete mercifully. He was out cold when he was swarmed under. He never felt the sharp teeth biting his flesh, the dirty dead hands ripping out his internal organs, the heavy crunching blows opening his skull for the brain eaters. Whew. My, oh my. What a good chapter that was. Started off a little, little slow with all that backstory, but you know what? I take back what I said. We needed it because it made their deaths so much more impactful, I think, for, for the sake of the story. Um, so we will return next week once again with another two chapters. We're almost through, and I'm, I'm starting to think, what are we going to do when we're done? Well, I have another another story that we can read through that I'm interested in reading. I've got two things, actually, lined up. Um, but we'll see. We'll we'll see what's up. I like this Monday reading, uh, audiobook reading. It's fun. A lot of fun. So we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thank you for uh, supporting on Patreon. Your Patreons are seeing this first, um, as well as the YouTube uh, members themselves. And uh, for everybody else, make sure you like, share, and subscribe. Peace and hair grease.